Our reading today is from Daniel 4, 24 through 37. Daniel 4, 24 through 37. This is the interpretation, your majesty, and this is the decree the Most High has issued against my lord the king. You will be driven away from people and will live with wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that when your prosperity, prosperity will continue. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Even as these words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven, because everything he does is right, and all his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. This is the word of the Lord. These have not been short readings, have they, right? You hear that person reading, you're like, I'm glad they did not ask me today to read that text. Uh, we're in Daniel chapter 4, and we have gone to the second half of that chapter. So just let me give you a very brief introduction to what was taking place in the first half of that chapter. But let me also say, I would love for you to consider bringing these, these paper things, lots of pages. They're called Bibles, right? We have not brought them out in a long time. Sometimes we just don't want to carry them because we got them, the app on our phone. Please pull out the, the phone app or bring out that paper Bible. We have a huge new stack of them, which are gifts to anyone. Even if you would just like to use it during the service, you're welcome to. There's probably about 25 of them out there at the welcome table. But this would be a, a wonderful chapter to have all of chapter 4 in front of you, so I encourage you to put your phone on airplane mode, 
pull out that Bible app, have Daniel chapter 4 out front. The context for what you just heard read, which may have seemed a little bit outlandish and a little bit crazy, trying to figure out what is going on, what's really taking place is that this is a dream interpretation again. We uh, had King Nebuchadnezzar. He is the focus of this particular dream. We were introduced to him, of course, at the beginning. He is the king of Babylon. But we had a dream interpretation in Daniel chapter 2. Here we're looking at a second interpretation, Daniel chapter 4. But um, if we were to have your Bible open and you go to verse 4, verse 4 tells us that Nebuchadnezzar was at home in his palace, contented and prosperous when he had a dream that made him afraid. That's the context. He has a dream that makes him afraid. The dream, in a nutshell, is the dream of a huge tree that grew up from the earth. All the nations, they had a view of this tree. They could see it growing up. Animals were perching under it. There was safety and security. All of the eyes, all of the nations could see and honor this specific tree. But a voice came and said, chop down the tree, such that nothing was left, only a stump. All the animals scattered And so there's this change and shift in the dream. And of course, Nebuchadnezzar, he, in verse 4, he says, my life was going well. I was contented and prosperous when I had this dream. Things are going quite well in his life. He's probably a little bit older. Later in his rule and reign in this particular empire, he has secured peace. He's got a lot of good going on. And then God begins to work in his mind and in his life and through this particular dream in Daniel chapter 4. In Daniel chapter 2, just to make a very brief comparison, in Daniel chapter 2, it's also about something that grew up from the earth that all the nations could see. But in Daniel chapter 2, that particular statue and image, Nebuchadnezzar is symbolized as the head of it. He is at the top, but there are other kingdoms that were going to come and ultimately be demolished and overruled by the kingdom of God. This is about other kings and other kingdoms, Daniel 2. But in Daniel chapter 4, there's this very specific focus on one king, his life, the type of rule that he has. And ultimately, it's about humbling this king. This is a dream about pride. But it's also about what it takes in the human life to awaken you to the beauty of God's mercy that enables you to live in a proper way, not with yourself at the center, but with him at the center. So, of course, it's in some ways a dream about waking up to God's reality. So I'm going to walk you through Daniel 4 with three headings today. Number one, we're going to look at the idea of the false identity. Number two, we'll look at the theme of the crisis of pride. And number three, what it takes to restore all of that is what we're going to call gospel sanity. All right, so false identity, the crisis of pride, and number three, gospel sanity. It can be really fascinating to watch humans of all ages try to answer the question of who are you? My children, they started uh, school this past week, and we took Aaron, who is a a rising third grader. We got to hang out with him. Of course, during COVID, most parents were not allowed if you have young children into the schools, and so we were glad to be able to walk him to the front door of his little class. We were there early. I was looking good. Mama was looking good. Aaron's looking good. We got our back-to-school clothes on. I got my back-to-school clothes on. Everybody's there for the first day of school. We're ready, right, because we want to be able to answer the question of, who are you? And it was really fascinating to stand with Aaron 
and to see all of these little classmates begin to populate the line right in front of his class. And most people are kind of like, kind of standing like this, right? They're still little and they're still a little bit insecure, a lot of bit insecure, and, and they don't want to engage one another, especially if it's new. So I tried to go, hey, what's your name? And hey, this is my son, Aaron, and he's still okay with that. If I tried that with Mason, who's in middle school, he'd be like, come on, dad, you got to get out of here. Um, but it was fascinating and curious to watch these little people begin this conversation around explaining and unpacking just the question of, who are you? They don't know each other, so how are you going to try to answer that question? And for me, and for you, of course, this is not just a, a kid's issue or a children's issue, nor is it actually just a Christian issue. Everybody has the burden of answering that question. Who are you? You're going to be confronted with that over and over again in life. And the question in some ways is, do I have an answer to that? Do I know who I am so that I can step into my spheres of influence outside of my home and have an answer to the question of, who are you? Now, there are two dominant pathways into securing an answer and establishing a sense of identity and answering that question. The first is, we achieve an identity. So achieving. The second answer to that, or the second pathway into that identity creation, is receiving an identity. And so let me just briefly unpack that. Talk about achieving. We often build a sense of who we are through an identity resume. I look around the room, and I know I have a lot of identity resume builders in the room. You are most likely like me. You are a doer, right? You are an achiever. Many of you are very educated. Some of you really value education. Some of you are pushing hard, even if you say, man, I don't have all the degrees, but I've got the ambition, right? This is what it means to be an achiever, to have an identity resume built on what you do. This is not new knowledge to you. You understand that we are creators, that we are innovators, that we want to be people who the world looks at you and says, you are worthwhile, well done, Right? You are somebody that I want to build a relationship with, but we often do that through creation, through doing, and through achieving. Now, let's talk about a couple of the characteristics or the symptoms of this sort of identity creation, this way of thinking. Some of the characteristics or symptoms are an inability to rest, because I always got to be doing, a void of soulful, real deep relaxation. You ever said to anybody near you, I feel like I just can't relax. I feel like I can't stop. It's because we are probably wired and the, the, the culture is pushing us forward. Keep doing, keep defining yourself, keep moving forward. A, a, a void of real deep soulful relaxation, a joyless, often a joyless internal disposition, a frenetic constant hum of anxiety, Maybe even a disdain for people who are not quite as industrious and hardworking as you are. A comparison mindset that prevents you from really actually offering love. And then the effect is burnout. Now, I want to bring your attention to this very unique um, uh, set of pictures that's going to come up in a moment by a German artist by the name of Wolfgang Stiller. He did an installation called Matchstick Men. And what he's doing in this is he's making a statement about the current state of affairs and the current state of burnout. I saw this a couple of years ago, and it has kind of captured my attention, and I just wanted to stop and think and look at these images. been displayed in different ways in different museums from New York to Australia to different places. Um, but this, this image is quite telling, isn't it? Where you see the very human face 
but then you see that it's, it's gone, it's dead, that it's been burned out. So, of course, the provocative imagery between the match and the human and the burnout. But I would say, of course, we're working hard. We're pushing hard. COVID has pushed us to the limits. It's exposed things that were already there. But the concept of burnout, I think, is fueled by the fire and the tender of the simple fact that we are trying to achieve through our working. So I'm working very hard, but there's something what Keller would call the work underneath the work. It's actually not just work anymore, it's identity creation through the work. And because I don't have an identity based on this God, I have this identity based on me, then there's no joy, there's no relaxation, there's a a low-lying hum of anxiety, and I kind of feel like that. Right? That's what's going on in my heart. And often the best coping mechanism to deal with all the pressure is to establish a false sense of self. Rich Velotis, pastor and author, he comments that the false self is a term many use to describe the identity we construct that conceals the true self found in Jesus Christ. Let's go back to Daniel 4 for a moment and look at this character who's at the center of the story, King Nebuchadnezzar. This guy is pretty impressive. I mean, he builds one of the great empires of antiquity, arguably within world history. He is ambitious, and he's got the resources to match. This guy is egotistical. He was achievement-oriented. He was voracious and violent in his attempt to answer that question of, who are you? And you would say, are you just kind of putting those facts on top of him, and that's an unfair judgment. Well, just go back one chapter to where he throws our three young teenage friends into the fire because they're not going to bow down before him in this huge statue, 90 feet tall, that's been erected in the plains outside of Babylon. This guy goes, you're not answering the question in the way that I need it to be answered. He's violent in his search for an answer to that question. His soul is not well. The, re- the reactions are violence and oppression. We see this even in this chapter where Daniel confronts this man and says, look, something's coming for you. God has given you a chance to turn your life around. You are egotistical and you are prideful. Everything is built upon you. God is giving you a moment's restoration, the ability to see life differently. And he goes, and Daniel even says to him, you know what you need to do to change? He goes, do what's right, do good, And stop oppressing people. Stop using your power for yourself. That was Daniel's response. God might change the situation, but you got some things to change in your life. Use your power for good. Do what is right and stop stepping on people along the way. Very basic, very simple. This man had erected a sense of, I am the master of this universe. And in a lot of real ways, let's just say he was one of the most powerful, one of the most rich, one of the most oppressive kings. But we're about to see his life totally change. But he had created a a false sense of identity. We'll get there specifically in a moment. Thomas Merton said, every one of us is shadowed by an illusory person, a false self. Richard Rohr said, the agendas of the false self is to look good and to pretend. Man, I resonate with that big time. That's part of my struggle, I think, is wanting to appear a certain way, have a certain set of gifts, but you got to display them in a certain way. And God is stripping that of me slowly but surely, not easy, 
But you do want to present yourself in a certain way and look good. But that's the false self. And Nebuchadnezzar, he gets lost in this journey. And he built so much and he accomplished so much that he begins to believe his own propaganda, which let me just summarize it like this. I don't need a God because I am a God. And this isn't just reserved to kind of this king of an empire. This is the way we are instructed to think through modern radical individualism. You don't need a God because you are a God. There's nobody telling you what to do. All of this is here accidentally. If you want an arbiter of truth, be at the center, be the judge, be the lawyer, be the one who determines it all. You don't need a God because you already are one. And the Lord intervened in this man's life to discipline him, yes. Discipline is a big part of the story. But he disciplines this man in order to revive him and in order to end the illusion, King Nebuchadnezzar, that you need to rule your life and that you can rule your life and that you are the master of your universe. Never before have human beings had the ability to curate a false sense of self. And I, um, just to comment on the power of social media, I mean, isn't that what social media allows you to do so that you can present something to the world that you want the world to see, but then you feel this distinction. There's a disembodiment between what you project and who you actually are so that you live in tension between what the world sees and what you see when you close your eyes at night. We have more tools at our disposal to create a false sense of self and a false sense of pride. But internally, man, we look like those matchstick men and women. The alternative, of course, to achieving, and I'll just mention this, is the other pathway into identity creation. That's, a, that's receiving an identity. This is what Christianity and Christianity alone can offer you. Christianity can offer you an identity that is more fundamental to who you are than your color, your culture, your nationality, your gender, your sexuality. Christianity teaches that you are created in the image of a God who says, I don't need to uh, have you do anything. You are worthy. You are lovely. You are beloved. I love you so much. I sent Jesus for you. So not only are you created with dignity and honor, but my only son gave his life for you to prove to you that you are lovely, worthy, and now you're mine. That is more fundamental to who you are than anything you will ever do. And so what God is teaching this man and us through this chapter is that you don't have to achieve an identity. You can receive an identity, and this is what you find only in the gospel. So let's keep going. The false identity structures, and number two, the crisis of pride. Look at verse 29. Verse 29 says, 12 months later, after the dream... And after the interpretation of the dream, you're the tree, it's going to be chopped down, okay? Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven this is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone 
that he wishes, all right? Of course, we have a little bit of an infatuation with the royals, let's just say, in a strange upside-down way. Nebuchadnezzar is also a royal. He comes from a royal line. His father was a king, so in many ways, he's second in line. He is a prince. He grew up around the royal family. Later, as his career developed, he emerges as a brilliant military strategist. People said, this guy's got skills. This guy is intelligent. He's somebody who can lead people. He defeats various armies, including those of Egypt, Syria, Palestine, and of course, as we know from our book and our Bible, they also defeat the, the armies and the people of Israel. Nebuchadnezzar had acquired hundreds of thousands of slaves to do all of the work that the Babylonians did not want to do. One author quotes this. He says, Nebuchadnezzar's main activity, other than as a military commander, was the rebuilding of Babylon. He completed and extended fortifications begun by his father, built a great moat and a new outer defense wall. Some say that it was even wide enough to race chariots on. There's a lot of evidence that this was not a thin wall, 10-foot wall, 40, 50, 60 feet wide. This was an incredible structure. There's almost no, uh, nothing comparable to it. He has this outer defense wall, paved the ceremonial processional way with limestone, rebuilt and embellished the principal temples, and he cut canals Art and architecture flourished in his city, in this Babylonian empire, especially in the city where he lives, in the city of Babylon, which is famous for that wall, as I mentioned, but it also protected these gorgeous, famed, renowned hanging gardens of Babylon with beautiful structures, a beautiful greenery, and even a man-made waterfall, considered one of the seven great wonders of the world. Man, this is a guy who has done a lot and listen to his response. I have a friend and a mentor. His name is John Hawkins. And he says, the truth of what occupies our souls always comes out eventually. All right? Keep that in mind as you hear what Nebuchadnezzar says. The truth of what occupies our soul always comes out eventually. And one day, as Nebuchadnezzar is walking on the rooftop, he looks out upon the city and he declares, quote, is not this the great Babylon that I have built by my power and for my glory. And he believed that everything that he saw was for him, that it was by him, that it was about his legacy. And you see this welling up of pride. And this is where his life dramatically begins to shift. Jeff Cook, he says, pride spurs me to view myself as the only one in the entire world who matters, to think that I have somehow earned the prime spot in the universe, and now all of creation is a grand symphony celebrating me. And you see that coming out of this man's heart. You see it coming out of his lips. He said it, it's been recorded, but I have a sense that this is part of how each of us views the world that we live in, especially when things are going well. That you look at your world and you go, man, I did this. I built this. And God intervenes in King Nebuchadnezzar's life to provide this initial warning about this way of life and this way of thinking and begins to show him that he's not self-sufficient, that all of this is not about him. And he begins to create a new heart, a humble heart in this man's life. Look back at verse 17 if you got that Bible or that app. Verse 17 gives us a little bit more information about God, what God is doing in Nebuchadnezzar's life. That verse says, the decision is announced by messengers or angels. The holy ones declare the verdict over your life, O king, so that the living may know 
that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of people. This is part of what God is doing in this chapter. The judgment and the discipline that's taking place in Nebuchadnezzar's life is a lesson on grace and on mercy, right? That's what that's saying. He goes, you don't understand mercy at all. Look at the way you're treating people. You don't understand grace at all. Look what you've claimed for yourself. And so, yes, it's a, it's a moment of judgment and discipline, but what he's doing is he's driving these principles deeper into this man's life and into this man's heart. See, verse 17, if you look closely at it and you apply it to your own life, what he's saying and what that verse is saying is that our biggest factors, the biggest factors that determine your future and your success are actually outside of you. That God is in control, that he's sovereign, and that it's him that moves life forward, not you. Let me just give you a couple of examples. This is going to be difficult for people who say, I actually find my identity resume in pathway number one. I'm an achiever. I'm a doer. And you're going to have the audacity to tell me that I haven't worked hard enough or that somehow this isn't all about me. Of course it's about me. I'm a self-made man. I'm a self-made woman. This may offend you to some degree because of how easy it is and how natural it is to have an identity that you've achieved. But it doesn't, I think, take a lot of effort for you to stop and be honest that the things that have determined your success, the things that are the most effective in pushing you forward, all of them are actually outside of your control. You didn't get to choose your family of origin, did you? You didn't choose when or where you'd be born. You didn't get a choice in being male or female. You didn't get to choose whether your family was rich or poor. You didn't get to choose or you didn't have a say in the type of parents that you'd have as a child. You didn't get a say in your IQ or even the bigger parts of your personality that you think have directed most of your life. If Even if you were to stop and say, what if I were born only 100 years ago in Central Africa, who would I be? The answer is, we'd all be farmers, right? So much is out of our control but we assume that so much of our life and where we're headed is up to us. And God disciplines, or the discipline of Nebuchadnezzar is so that he can feel and believe the bottom of his heart that the world does not revolve around him and that God, everything we have is given to us by God, all is grace and all is mercy. That's so hard when you're good, when you're smart, when you're successful, for you to stop and actually believe all of life is gift. All of life is mercy. Sin in general, and pride in particular, can be described as a curvature inward. As my friend John Hawkins mentioned earlier, the truth of what occupies our soul is always going to come out, which means that we are actually designed to be occupied with God. That's supposed to come out of your life. It's supposed to come out in conversation. The truth of what you love and value is going to come out. It's going to be revealed. But when you curve inward on yourself, when pride begins to be the central factor in your storyline, what this story shows us is that the shift begins to happen in your life from sympathy to selfishness. Or another way of saying it is from compassion to being predatory. 
And see, what God is exposing in Daniel chapter 4 is that what was already going on in Nebuchadnezzar's life and heart through his treatment and through his perspective on the world, he's taken what was lodged inside of that man and he's bringing that animal nature to the surface. It's just been hidden behind the scenes. And God says, is that the way you view the world? Is that the way you view other people? I'm going to take that characteristic of you that's gone from being human, now it's become an animal-like substance or a predatory perspective on life. I'm going to pull that out. I'm going to put it right on the surface so you can see it and the world can see it. Look again at verse 33. And immediately what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people, and he ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. Why did God do that to this guy? Well, in short, to revive him. He goes, you are dying and a lot of people getting hurt along the way. I have put you in a position of leadership. I am using you and your reign and your family line and your lineage, but you have manipulated what this is about. And God gets this man's attention and shows him, it's not all about you. With a little snap of his fingers, his life changes, his mind changes, the way he functions changes. Of course, he's lost his sanity. Notice that immediately his pride drives him away from community. No more friendship, isolation and alone, living like an animal, nails growing long, hair growing long. What a vivid description of what pride has done in this man's life. Everything that was actually in him, now on the surface. And God says, I'm after your heart, Nebuchadnezzar. I want to rekindle a real love for you. I want to bring you back to spiritual reality. And here's a spiritual reality. There's one God, and you're not him. That's it. There's one God, and you're not him. Everything we have is owed to the mercy of God. C.S. Lewis says, in God, you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God is that, and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. Let me take you to the last part. This man's life has changed. He is restored. So let me take you to verse 34 and gospel sanity. Verse 34 says this. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. Skip to verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven, because everything he does is right, and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Wow. I mean, an incredible, unexpected turn of events, transition and transformation in this man's life. Many commentators think that you will meet Nebuchadnezzar as a fellow believer in Jesus Christ one day, that he's with Jesus. Can you imagine meeting this Babylonian king whom God changes his life in a moment, sends him out and isolates him. He lives like an animal in order to expose him to the simple fact that life is mercy. 
and his life is transformed. And you see him declare something very specific about who this God is, but you also see the way in which it took place in his life. His mind and his body and his soul are all restored, but how did it happen? It happened in verse 34. Look at verse 34. Verse 34 says, I raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. In other words, the moment he stopped looking inward and he made life about himself, when he stopped the process of making life about himself, his accomplishments, and his kingdom, when he took his eyes off of himself and he put it upward, sanity was restored in this man's life. He's brought back into community. The text actually says he had more than he began with. People came to him. The counselors came and sat at his feet. Everything is renewed and restored in this man's life. And I pray I get to meet him one day. I want to know this character. I want to know this man whose life was charmed by this incredible thing that happened in his life that seems so painful for seven seasons. Don't know if that means seven years or if it's just the perfect number, the perfect amount of time to change this man's life. But his life changed. And it happened when he took his eyes off of himself, it says, and he looked upward. And at that moment, sanity was restored in his life. And seeing what provides clarity and gospel sanity for you and for me is to watch the downward movement of another king. And this king, the second one, is not in this downward spiral out of discipline and judgment. He's there out of obedience to the Father. He's there because he chooses to be, not because he's being disciplined and he has to be. And you see this king who makes this incredible movement downward, not out of something that he had done, but actually out of something that I had done and that you had done. And you watch the life of Jesus Christ and you see the way in which he gives up himself. He serves other people. You see this humility baked into the gospel, and you go, when I watch the downward movement of that king, it changes everything for me. And what the downward movement of the gospel gives you is a realistic self-appraisal and a realistic God-appraisal. Those two things are the ingredients for gospel sanity, for the switching of the perspective on life and what you're here for, for the proper answering of the question of, who am I really? See, the, pop, the proper perspective on yourself, a self-appraisal, says Jesus had to come for me. I'm not at the center of the universe, but the master of the universe was made nothing so that me, the sinner, could be restored. When I begin to understand who I am in the equation, that I'm not the Savior, but I need one, I understand this deep humility, that I have this perspective on life that says, yes, you're made in the image of God, and yet you need to be restored. And then I have this proper God appraisal, which says not only is he powerful, not only is he strong, but he's for me, he's kind, he's good. He can't give anything more than he's already given. This shows you how loved you are. And this begins to restore sanity in the human heart, where you're going to run from polarity to polarity. Like, I'm trying to create this identity, uh, this identity resume all the time. I feel like I'm burned out like that picture. Like, that's the work underneath the work. I don't know how it can stop. That's why you see the downward movement of Jesus Christ. And on the cross, what does he say? It is finished. What does that mean? It means no more deep, soulful work for you. All of this is done and accomplished Hold out your hands, Nebuchadnezzar. 
Hold out your hands, friends, and let this God fill you up. This is where gospel sanity gets restored. A proper appraisal of myself as a sinner, but a sinner who has an even greater Savior. See, I need grace, and Jesus gives it. And that balance of who we really are, sinner and saint, dependent yet beloved, is what humbles the heart into this good news gospel sanity. Matthew 5, 3, as Jesus was preaching, Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, not the proud in spirit, right? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who don't look inward for solutions, but say, Jesus, come and help me. I'm needy, I'm broken, I need you. And you know what he does through his spirit as I close? What he does is he takes what is internal and real, the gospel, your belovedness, your discipleship. It's inside of you. Sometimes you can't feel it. And through his spirit, you know what he's going to do? He's going to bring it out to the surface, just like he did to Nebuchadnezzar in reverse. He took the animal-like character of this man and he exposed it to the world. What the Holy Spirit wants to do is take the promise of the gospel that you are beloved and saved and he wants to bring it out in your life. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. That's what we're committed to. Let me encourage you. Dare to lift your eyes to heaven. Dare to take your eyes off of yourself and look to Christ with me, with us and see how God restores your life in your heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there's so much to learn from this ancient story. And as we sit here and sweat in San Diego, we pray that you would uh, make our heart warm as well. But we need more of you. I need more of you. Pray that you'd provide gospel sanity to my life, my heart, not swayed by the opinions of everything, pinging back and forth. Uh, Lord Jesus, that is so exhausting. But there's a beautiful identity in Christ that can be ours. No more false self, because Jesus has seen it, crucified it, and redeemed it. Jesus became a matchstick man Jesus was lifted up on a cross so that we could be human again, healed, restored, forgiven. The world needs gospel sanity, good news sanity, which starts with you, a proper appraisal of who you are and also a healthy understanding of who you declare us to be. So come in and restore. Come in and renew. We lift our eyes to heaven, even right now as we sing. Meet with us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.